John Billingsley, Phil Flox, Hollywood Food Coalition here. Guess what? Trek Talks 2. It's happening. You asked for it. You got it. January 14, eight hours of premium Star Trek entertainment. Amazing guests. Mad Capri. Insightful social commentary. Musical interludes. Support HoFoCo. Check us out at HoFoCo.org. Helping people in need for almost 40 years. 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the 14th of January at TrekTalks.net. Live long and mark your calendars. Again, TrekTalks.net. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Sisters Podcast, where we give you our point of view. We are proud members of the Trek Geeks Podcast Network, and we are here today with a fantastic show. As usual, super duper excited because we've got a fabulous guest for you. But before we get to our guest, I want to say I'm joined today by my sisters, Yvette Blackmanton. Hello. Sabrina Wood. Whoop, Fran T. What's happening? And me, Tamia. So we have a man with us that um, honestly, we're kind of sitting here pretty tickled. Uh, Sabrina is like jumping up and down because this is her man. (laughs) Because if you've watched Star Trek recently, you know, after TOS, then you've seen this man's work. And uh, we love him to pieces. He has directed more Star Trek than any other human being. And he's here to join us today about a discussion on directors. He is the one and only Mr. David Livingston. Thank you for joining us. Yay! Yay! (laughs) Thank you for having me. We're super excited that you're here. I'm going to kick off the show, give it to Sabrina. Go ahead. She's biting. (laughs) I know. She's like, I'm just... Giving this to Sabrina. Hi, everybody. Yes, I am really excited about this. D- David, we, we met you out in Las Vegas for the first time, but I have been a fan forever. We've all been fans. We know this is DS9 month as far as we're concerned, DS9 year even. So we definitely wanted to have you on the show. But um, the thing that I really wanted to talk about so much with you, and we talked about a little bit at the Vegas party for um, the Hollywood Food Coalition, which we're going to talk about in a second, is this whole idea of the director and training program that Star Trek developed. And I, I want to get into that with you. But first, let, let's do talk about the Hollywood Food Coalition because we're really excited about that coming up. Yeah, the Hollywood Food Coalition is a, a charity in the Los Angeles area that services uh, the needs of those less privileged than us. Uh, we provide a nightly meal uh, to those in need, as well as acting as a major food distribution center uh, for the Los Angeles area. And last year, we had a program called Trek Talks uh, in support of the Hollywood Food Coalition, where we invited a lot of, uh, of uh, uh, Trek celebrities to participate in a six-hour uh, Zoomathon, of which the Sci-Fi Sisters uh, launched the show. And they will be back for Trek Talks 2. Yay! Oh, donate, oh, donate, donate. Please donate. <laughs> 
go to trektalks.net uh, and uh, join the fun. It's going to be eight hours. We have a tremendous lineup of people. Um, Scott Bakula is going to be there. Uh, Anson Mount, Jonathan Frakes, Brent Spiner, Will Wheaton. We've got a, a great cohort of, uh, I mean, I'm just naming a couple of people. Um, John Billingsley, who is on, is on the Hollywood Food Coalition Board of Directors along with me and is instrumental in launching um, uh, Trek Talks. So we're looking forward to seeing everybody on January 14th, starting at 10 a.m. Pacific time. So if you have the time, uh, please join us. And if you can contribute, uh, it would be great because it goes to a very worthy cause, uh, the Hollywood Food Coalition. So, so David, how did you get involved in it, actually? I know you're on the board and John's on the board, but how did this all even come about for you personally? In 2019, uh, during the summer, I decided to uh, do, do, start doing more personal photography, which I had sort of walked away from for many years. And using my iPhone exclusively, I went out and uh, we go on walks with my wife and my dog and all over the gen- all over the uh, Los Angeles area to Santa Monica, the Hollywood area, the Hollywood Hills. And I would uh, take a bunch of photographs. I'd come home at night and look at the photographs that I had taken. And 90% of the photos were of homeless and the unhoused. And it said something to me. It said, you are seeing something that you hadn't seen before. And I said, I have to keep exploring this so I can understand it. And I don't know if I ever understood it, but my empathy level grew exponentially. And I ultimately decided to share the photographs uh, in exhibits. And uh, I I showed John Billingsley uh, the initial uh, exhibit, and he asked if I would partner uh, with the Hollywood Food Coalition to present the exhibit. And we did two exhibits in early uh, 2020, uh, right before COVID hit. And uh, it was it was very successful. It, it uh, People were said they were very moved by it. We got a lot of contributions. Um, and uh, subsequent to that, John asked me to join the board and I've been with them now for, for three years. Oh, wow. So that was the genesis of it is, is that uh, I saw, I finally saw what was happening in front of me and I, I had this need to document it and then the need to share it uh, with the public. Wow, that's a that's an amazing story, and, and I understand that you know. Just to say that when we did the the, the telethon last year, and I, I know I'm, I'm speaking for all the sisters, and I know they say the same thing. It was something that I I had felt like I'd really done something. I was so proud of just that little bit that we did, and what was happening. And I know what you're saying about you know, you see something in front of you. I mean, the the live clips that everybody was doing, you know, and you say, oh, yeah, we're going to do this thing. We're going to raise some money. But when you were watching it and seeing what people were going through, it was it was really moving. And I really felt um, like, wow, what am I doing by doing nothing? I mean, OK, we're going to do this 15 minute thing and we've got to do more. And that's how I kept feeling. And I, I, I understand, uh, you know, exactly how you feel with like that empathy coming through. And, and I, I just really... um I'm really happy to be a part of it. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> no, and you said it very, and you said it quite eloquently. Um, we have one of the uh, um, uh, panels that we have is something called Trektivism, which is about taking 
what we've all uh, learned from what Gene Roddenberry initiated about mankind coming out on the positive end of everything. And how do we apply that to our own lives? And that was sort of the focus of, of uh, Trek Talks 1 and will be on Trek Talks 2. And focusing on Trektivism, it's like, how do we in our personal lives apply the precepts and, and the concepts of Star Trek to our own lives mm-hmm. and, 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 give, and give back to the community the gift that we've been given of Star Trek? Um, be, because what else are we going to do? You know, right. we, yeah, it, it's and sort of the true believers. That's what it's true believers. <laughs> and, it's a, and it's a call to action. So we are hoping to inspire people to forget about the money and the contributions, yeah. but do, do, do something. Something. You, the first thing you have to do is show up. Okay. Show up and do something in your community. Just if you just help one person a day, think how incredible, incredible that will be. So that's why uh, Trek talks was so fulfilling. Cause I think because of the funds we raised and the people we reached, hopefully we inspired a lot of people to go out and take personal action as well as whatever contributions they could make. Okay. Well, thank you so much for, for you know, getting us involved in it. We really appreciate it. Well, no, it. thank you. Thank you for doing it. Uh, <laughs> you started the show off with a bang and uh, the energy level and it was great. And I know this time around, I don't want to spoiler alert. I'm not going to say what, what's going to be happening, but, but uh, you have a, uh, a great panel uh, that will be presented on, on Trek Talks too. So everybody, please attend. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. So, uh, so now I, I want to do, I really want to get into this director thing because um, we were talking at the party and I, and I said, I, I just asked you about, you know, my idea for a podcast. And I said, I really want to talk about the cast members who directed. And you said, oh, well, <laughs> I'm going to have to help you with that. I said, yes, thank you, because I don't even know how to approach this whole thing. But um, tell me a little bit about how you started. I know you started as a, a a unit manager. So you just came in right from film school, or how did you get on Star Trek at all? Well, I, I didn't come in from homes, uh, from film school. I, I did go to USC film school, but uh, I started off in the business as a gopher, go for this, go for that, mm-hmm. and, and work my way up uh, and finally into the director's guild as a unit production manager where I was doing pilots um, and movies of the week. And uh, um, I interviewed uh, in 1987 for this pilot at Paramount uh, where they were going to uh, relaunch the Star Trek um, uh, franchise. And I interviewed for the job and I got the job as a unit production manager. Uh, I was going to leave uh, the show after the pilot uh, at Christmas because I didn't want to do episodic television, which is a real grind. Um, wow. So, so the, I told the producers I was going to leave and they made me off an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh-oh. Uh, they said, we'll make you a producer and uh, you don't have to be the unit manager anymore. So it was more money and less work. So there you go. Okay. That works. That's a no brainer, right? Right. (laughs) Take that offer every day. (laughs) And and it was above the line position. So I got a better title, all those, all those things that come with it. And so once I was on as a producer, um, I'd sit in dailies with Rick every day, uh, going over what other directors would were doing. And Rick at uh, one point said, 
um, be, would you like to direct for the show? I have to go back a little bit and explain the context for that. Um, Rick Berman is one of the most generous people I have ever met. And what he did was establish the DIT school on Star Trek. DIT is, stands for Director in Training. And he allowed anybody who was in front of the camera or behind the camera to go to DIT school, where they would study other directors, they'd go to editorial, they'd spend time on the set all on their own time, they'd do scene study, they'd see movies, whatever, anything they could do to absorb what it was like to be a director. And at some point, if Rick felt enough confidence in you, he would give you a shot directing an episode. And going back to the story, I'd sit in dailies and and he saw that I was interested in the process. He knew that I had gone to film school and he offered me a, a shot, um, which I am forever grateful for. I have a question. I have to start. <laughs> so did he decide, oh, you know what? I'm going to do a, a film school on, on the set or did, or did he see what made him come up with this? Like why, what was his, I know he's generous, but he just said like, I, I see people asking me to, I want to learn how to be a director or, you know, I always thought it was because Jonathan Frakes wanted to learn. And I thought he then created the school after that experience, but now you're, you're well, that, me that may, that different. may be, that may, again, I don't know the origin. So I, your timeline, <laughs> your timeline might be uh, more accurate. Uh, Jonathan was the first uh, uh, director. And I sort of remember that I, I thought it was, pl- I thought we were referring to it as, as did school at that point. At that point. Okay. Yeah. But I, but I could be wrong. Cause you know, it's only. Uh, nine, uh, <laughs> uh, so you must've gone through right after Jonathan. No, no, no. I didn't direct for another couple of years after that. There oh, were really? Lot, okay. Yeah, there were a lot of other people. I think I was the fourth season of TNG. Uh, I, my first show was The Mind's Eye. I'm not sure what... I think that was four seasons. Yeah. yeah. So but, yeah, was ahead. it a formalized thing? I mean, so you, you, you sort of like put your, your memo into Rick Berman and say, I would like to go to DIT school. And then he would come back and say, yes, you can go to DIT school. You had your little note from the principal and well, <laughs> you off you went to school. In my case, I was so petrified about doing it. <laughs> I, I had to go back into therapy for six months. Oh, no way. And, and at the end of six months, I had also done a lot of scene study. Uh, when you do scene study, you have to get actors to come in and, and, and do your scenes so you can track how a scene develops and how to get the emotional content out of the scene, et cetera. The people, the actors that I would bring in to do my scene studies with me privately, um, I would bring into casting sessions and, and Rick used to, uh, to try and get them parts on the show. And oh. Rick would tease me and say, Oh, here comes another Livingston player. So, <laughs> so, so he knew that I was heavily invested emotionally and physically in study, even though I had directed in, in film school and made short films and all that stuff. I had not done anything professionally, but he saw how committed I was. And once I got through my therapy and, and I felt confident enough to, to go for it, I went to him and I said, I'm ready. And he said, okay. Wow. That I, was great for me. Now, I, I had an inside to the guy. I mean, I had an office next to him. So <laughs> many people don't have that opportunity. So I was blessed and, and my gratitude is, is boundless because of 
Yeah, it, it's it, it's the luck of the draw. And I just happened to have an office next to the guy and and uh, and I finally took advantage of the situation. Wow. I I can't even imagine. So once you how long did it last the school? I mean, it went for a season or a couple of episodes. How long were you like once you were in there? Depended on the person. As I oh, said, okay. Again, I went through therapy for six months, so I would say mine was six months. And I did a lot of work during that time, uh, analyzing other directors' work, going to editorial, talking to um, uh, the editors, spending a lot of time on the set, as I said, doing the scene study, Mm -hmm. and and looking at my favorite movies again and saying, what inspires me? What's my... What is my point of view? I would also... One thing I did a lot of, I would take a, a scene that a director was going to direct uh, that day on the set and I would read it and I'd say, I'd say to myself, what would you do with this, David? And then I would go watch that director and I'd say, oh, I like what I did better or, Ooh, I, like <laughs> or I like what they did better. I, you know, I have no ego. If, if they're doing something better, I'm going to steal it. So that, <laughs> that was a very uh, key educational tool to, to develop uh, uh, your chops to be to to go in and do a scene because when you go in and do a scene it's a beginning middle and end mm-hmm. and and it's emotional every scene is about every scene every movie every whatever is is life and death so you have to infuse whatever you're doing with with life and death and if you can do that for everything you do, even though it's not literally life and death, then you're bringing emotional power to the scene. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything. If the general audience reads a script, they get nothing out of it because wow. they don't have the capability or the ability to translate into their heads into how you make it into a, a, a scene that can be photographed. And mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that that you know, that, that I have all the answers or anything. And you have all these tremendous technicians and actors who coalesce to, to help you do your quote unquote vision. But, but that's the gift of the director being able to take a scene that's, that's reads on a page as a, as a dry document and try and capture what the, uh, the author and the writer's intention was for the emotional journey and development for that particular scene. Oh, wow. So you said something a, a little bit back there that I wanted to ask you about. You said you watched some of your favorite films. So one of the things people say is that, you know, they watch a Hitchcock film and they know that that's Hitchcock. Or, you know, they say, oh, I'm going to watch a, I know this is a Jonathan Freaks episode when I see it. And I'm like, every time, really? you know it. <laughs> every so time. is that something that you, uh aspire to or do you think that's a good thing that the direct that the director of the episode is putting such a stamp on it or you know what i'm saying is it well of course yeah it's wonderful if you can episodic television is tough because right. you don't have the time you don't have the control it's creatively uh the the only you get to direct on the set and you get your first cut but after that you don't have any involvement you don't you don't participate in the writing of the script you don't get to make the casting decisions, even though you participate, but there okay. is a time when you're on the set where you pick the shots you're going to do to try and take the audience on the journey for that particular, that particular scene. Where were we? I, oh, oh, you're talking about vision. Um, but 
Yes, directors inspire me. In my first show, uh, The Mind's Eye, um, I recreated um, uh, a shot from The Manchurian Candidate, which is one of my favorite yeah, movies. I'm a I huge, love that movie. I'm a, I'm a huge John Frank. I'm talking about the original. Which the original. I know. I, listen, mm-hmm. yeah. we knew Let's which one clear. you were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> the Frank Sinatra one. Thank you. Yes. Yeah, John Frankenheimer. Uh, who I got to meet once, which was a great, oh, wow. a great wow. thrill. Um, but I, I, I did a shot that was recreating where, where a guy is sitting down and he gets shot and falls back over. Well, that right. was my homage there. Oh mm-hmm. my God. And I, I, I tried to do that a couple of times other in episodes where, you know, it was, it's more for me. Nobody else would even probably know, but you do those to, to pique your own interest. Sabrina I knew. I knew. <laughs> it's in her notes. <laughs> no, but you know, when we talked about that episode, we were doing our Geordie, uh, our Geordie Love uh, episode, and that mm-hmm. was one of our favorites, Mind's Eye. Mm-hmm. We pulled that one out of there. We were like, that was one of the best. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. And I know you were talking about you weren't happy with the ending that you had in that one. You said in another um, something that I read about you that that was your first one. And you said that you felt that you had missed the beat at the end of that. You wish you had come in stronger. Is that still how you feel about it? Yes. I looked at it recently and it wasn't as um, bad, I'll use the word, as I had originally <laughs> thought. But I was really right. depressed. I was really depressed when I left the set that night because mm. I was way over schedule. I was getting a lot of pressure oh, and wow. I was supposed to do a stunt rather than something less action oriented. And I went and talked to Patrick about it. He said, I told him what I thought we should do. And he said, yeah, that'll be okay, David. I still regret it. And when I got home that night, I said, if I ever get the other, the the chance to direct again, I'm never going to do that again. Hmm. And I never, and you never did. I never did. I (laughs) never shot. Keep them there till midnight. Just do power play. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I, I stuck to my guns and, uh, um, you have to. It's it's otherwise you're not being honest to the job. Right. Um, it has certain requirements, and and uh, you have a responsibility to deliver the show to the best of your ability. And if you walk away from a beat or or something that you feel is critical to the drama, then you're doing a disservice not only to your to the show but also your also to yourself. Um, so. So because well, it's I life and I death. Seen as life and death. Life and death. But you no, know, it is. It's, and you have to look at it as as life and death. You everything has to be infused with that and with energy and with passion. Um, otherwise, why why would anybody want to watch? <laughs> I, I see I, I see a lot of movies, and some of it is just like, why did they bother doing this? And <laughs> Why, why, where's the, heart? where's the heart and where's the power? And yet other movies just rip me along. And right. those are the ones that, that I cherish. You brought up Hitchcock. I'm a huge, huge Hitchcock fan. Oh, I me see. too. Me he too. I love, master. I love Hitchcock. What's your favorite Hitchcock movie? Well, I've watched North by Northwest probably a hundred times, <laughs> okay. but, but I think Vertigo is his masterpiece. Uh, ah, okay. It, it is. Uh, I love that movie so much. Yeah, every every frame of that movie is wonderful. And the problem with audiences today is they don't have 
attention spans over 30 seconds. So they don't, they can't sit down and watch vertigo. And it's, it's too bad because it's the ultimate film about obsession, voyeurism, uh, all kinds of these pathologies that Hitchcock had. And he just spewed them out onto the, onto the screen, his obsession with blonde, uh, his blonde actresses and stuff. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's sick and twisted and magnificent. And Paul, mm-hmm. and Jimmy Stewart is the ultimate tragic figure. Oh. Uh, it is, and the, the, the music score by Bernard Herrmann, oh. everything about it, it it's, it's a master, to me, it's a masterpiece. So um, if I had to pick one Hitchcock film that I would, well, it would be North by Northwest because I love it so much. I, there's so it's, many, it's iconic, cool. it's cool. there's so many iconic scenes in it, you know, from the, the, the cornfield scene and the Mount Rushmore and everything about it. So you I get know what, it. What do I love about that one? I, I am that person that, you know, I'm that credit reader, like, like Fran, but mm-hmm. that's Saul Bass, you know, the titles cards, you know, when it starts, when it starts with those lines coming down and then it turns into the skyscraper. I just, I just yeah. love like Saul, that. Saul, just... Saul was great. I knew Saul Bass. Oh, get oh. out of here. Yeah. Yeah. He was a little guy. But boy, was he talented. He created the AT&T Bell logo as well. His main job was as a graphic designer uh, working for advertising uh, firms to give to create corporate logos. But he designed a tremendous amount of title sequences and really made it into an art. And yes. I, I'm with you, Sabrina, that that title sequence is brilliant. Um, the lines that end up being the building and stuff. It's mm-hmm. the perfect introduction to that movie so you guys I'm, don't know how many movies you've seen where it's the movie's starting and that is Saul Bass's work bringing you into that film and it's like the man was an artist he was he was a genius in that regard absolutely well you know he also I don't know if it's apocryphal or not but he supposedly um helped out uh in the montage shower sequence in Psycho he, mm. he designed he helped design that sequence um, which, which I believe because it's believe very, it. very graphic. Yeah. Hitchcock did this uh, incredible preparation for his films where he would storyboard everything and put it up on a wall. Mm-hmm. And he'd go out and shoot the storyboard, which allowed him the freedom to change because he had it all planned out. But that's my understanding that Saul actually participated in designing that horrific, that, that a lot of people st- st- Stop taking showers for a while. Oh, <laughs> you've got that right. Because of Janet Lee. <laughs> oh, Again, the great, the great Bernard Herman uh, cue there. It's uh, what a, that, that's, that's a. It still scares. But it's no, so, scared of a Jesus out of me as a child. Oh, that shower mm-hmm. scene. Oh my gosh. Hitchcock, like, is, oh. Hitchcock has scarred most of us. Yes. <laughs> I don't like birds because I am right. Oh, right. Birds. Another one. Oh, Can't stand birds. <laughs> nope. No birds. I, I have to ask Fran, how old were you when you saw it? I was out maybe nine. Oh dear me. That's. I know. Wow. <laughs> I think it did come out in like 63 or something like yeah, that. Yeah. I it snuck was... out to see it when I was 11 or 12. I was, I was, I was about nine See, wow. I didn't, I didn't go to, to see it. Ooh, I, yeah, I saw it at, at about nine and I'm sitting there going, and you know, I read later on that they, the, one of the, I don't know if it's not, but I've read this in several places. One of the reasons why they shot it in black and white, because they didn't want to do the red blood. 
Oh. Yeah, blood, blood is tricky on uh, camera, but um, I, I think it's, I can't see that in color. I, I think it yeah. would have. I cannot. Uh, it would have been it, too horrifying. Yeah. Oh, yeah. gosh. Well, I don't think it would have been. Well, I mean, I, I think it would have lost a lot of impact, honestly. I think the, uh, the starkness of the, the, the mental space that you're in is that black and white is, is really one of the main reasons that you go there. I mean, it's so, it's such an effective way of drawing you to into this, this stark world of theirs. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I thought it was a perfect reflection. To me, to I'm, me. With you, I'm with you hundred percent on that. I, you know, that's one of the first movies stark. where, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. That's one of the first movies where they actually made you wait until the beginning of the movie mm-hmm. back in the day right friend you could just, you could just, just go, go in, in anytime. anytime and just see the movie any place you would you see the and last half and then you just see the first half for, yeah. <laughs> now you got the whole movie but they made you wait if you came in less you know anything after five minutes you could not be you seated and everybody said oh my wait. god what is going on that was psycho it started it was that was the first movie to do that so anyway so, i wanted to know let me, how much let me pre- tell- let me just one more one more thing on cycle because I oh, think it's absolutely interesting because I'm such a pat. <laughs> you can spend five hundred million dollars making a movie, but Hitchcock shot that movie in a couple of weeks uh, with his with the television crew from the Alfred Hitchcock Hour. That's and I never knew that. Yeah, and it was boom done. It was shot on the back lot of Universal. The house is still up on yes. a hill there. Yeah. Uh, so, so it shows you that if you have a strong premise, you have a great script, you have a great director and a great cast, it doesn't matter, what, matter whether you spend a dollar or a or hundred million dollars. Uh, you wow. got you to gotta have something at the core of it. And you do. Okay, Good I'm story. done. <laughs> That's really fascinating. Though. I never knew wow. that. Yeah. Well, yeah. My, I did not know that either. I used to love that Alfred Hitchcock TV show too. I, I watched it. It when still I was comes there. on. It's yeah. Still, it comes every night on uh, MeTV. Okay. Yeah. So, how much time did you have to prepare for a Star Trek episode? So, you get a script. You don't. You you can't even pick. You just get it assigned to you, right? Correct. You, yeah. You're the uh, you're the pick of the week and uh, <laughs> the victim of the week. Uh, so directors have uh, scripts are not assigned to directors. Uh, it's just the luck of the draw. And you have a seven day prep. Oh, at least at least that's what Star Trek was. Television has changed tremendously in the last decade. But mm-hmm. traditionally, episodic television is seven days of prep and either seven or eight days of shooting, depending on the complexity of the episode. Mm hmm. The 26 episodes that you were doing back in those days, 26. It was, it was a grind. We look back on it and go, how the heck did we do that? I don't even know. I can't still can't believe the writers were able to keep up with that because how do you churn out something like that? It's every week. It's pretty phenomenal. You know, it's, it's ultimately it's easy to shoot it. Just give us a script and we'll do it. And we'll spend, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day doing them, but we'll get them done. But to come up with that kernel of an idea and then go into a room with a bunch of other writers and and uh, and and trying to figure out what to do and then have somebody write it. That's an I am a great supporter of writers. I in television, writers are king. Uh, The the showrunners are the executive producers and their writers. Director. It's not a director's medium. Really? Yes. But television. 
is a writer's medium. Television is a writer's medium. Okay. Yeah. Well, so you me, you have a writer's of, credit too on Star Trek. You wrote one episode. Well, I wrote <laughs> again. <laughs> uh, Ira Bear. Uh, I, I pitched a story, uh, which uh, uh, Quark is a business leader. He does something. I forgot even what I pitched <laughs> in my story, and the B story was uh, Jake teaching Nog how to read. Us mm. uh, Nagus, isn't it? That's the Nagus. And they bought the story based on that premise about Nog, Nog being taught to read by Jake. So the B plot sold the. That was the B plot. That's what they bought. <laughs> but they couldn't. And that's just the story. I didn't write the script. What happened was I, I go to the pitch, I go to the, uh, the story meeting where they have a big uh, board where they write down the beats of the story and they go through what the script is going to be. And Everybody was asking one another, what are we going to do for the A story? David had this idea for a, for a Quark being a businessman kind of deal, but it doesn't really work. So what are we going to do? And Michael Piller raised his hand and, and went, let's do The Godfather. Oh! And everybody went, yeah, let's do The Godfather. And uh, Michael, <laughs> Michael turned to Ira and pointed at him and said, Ira, write The Godfather over the weekend. <laughs> that, that Monday... They hand me, they hand me the Godfather. Wow. And we shot, we shot the Godfather. We did it. Sure we did. did. We did the opening scene as a, as an homage to the, to the Godfather. <laughs> Anybody who's seen the episode, hopefully they get it. But, uh, but, uh, and, and Ira, when it came to the directors or to, to the writer, writer's guild credits, because they have to go through the writer's guild for approval and arbitration possibly he graciously gave me story credit. Ah. He didn't need to. I was a member of staff. The Writers Guild does not uh, look kindly on members of this production staff uh, writing for the shows because they think it's a little iffy. Mm -hmm. uh, but Ira did do that for me. And again, I'm grateful to him for that. It was very generous of him. Well, that, that um, I just, it's, I, I love that the the basis for that uh, was that that scene with Jake and Nog uh, today being Aaron's birthday? Um, I, I that just when you said that I was like, oh, what? That's perfect, you know. Because when we talk about the when when uh, Sirach Lofton and Aaron when he was alive, when they talk about their friendship, they always talk about that scene, yeah. that one in the stem bolts, you know. But they always talk about that scene, so. I just wanted to bring that up being um, Aaron's birthday today. Yeah. Um, Aaron was a, a lovely, lovely man. And he was so generous as an actor and he would do anything for you. And I do remember those scenes because I shot several of them, uh, at least a couple of them up on the second level of the promenade where they're sitting there <laughs> uh, talking about life and whatever and watching the women move, move up and down the, the <laughs> promenade. Uh, yeah, they uh, they they were they were great together, and, and Aaron was. I remember um, the the episode where um, uh, Worf and Dax get married. Um, mm, yes, mm -hmm. cordially invited. Yeah, classic. Exactly. In the scene, uh, there's a dance after they get married. <laughs> yeah. and, oh you're laughing, and what you're doing right now is per is perfect. That's exactly. The <laughs> Because Aaron came up to me and said, 
David, I don't know how to dance. What what dance am I supposed to do? And I said, Aaron, you're a Ferengi. Figure it out. Figure it out. <laughs> I said, whatever you come up with is going to be gold. And that whole thing that he did and the way that Terry right. Carroll answered him is priceless. Right. Terry that, jumped right in. An absolute <laughs> classic. All, that was all Aaron. Totally Aaron. I had nothing to do with it. All I did was shoot it. And and hopefully I didn't ruin any takes by laughing. But all of their reaction was was how genuine and yeah. how sweet and wonderful and how Ferengi and yet how human. Mm-hmm. Frankie's Frankie's of all the characters on the history of Star Trek. Who are the most human characters in the Star Trek universe? Definitely the Ferengi. The Ferengi. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Ferengi is us. Yep, that, definitely. Yeah. They're yeah. us. Yeah. They're us. Prophet. Mon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Give me that gold plate platinum or whatever it's called. That's yeah. right. <laughs> well, I, am, I am really sorry that people are only listening because you just saw like <laughs> Sci-Fi Sisters doing the Ferengi dance here. <laughs> 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 oh, God. Uh, so um I, I did want to ask you about, of course, you you are the director of one of the most loved episodes, The Visitor. And uh, um now that is one that yeah, every scene is <laughs> life and death. <laughs> Some of the yeah, most li- amazing. literally in that one. Um yeah. Uh I had gone freelance, I'd left my producing job and uh, I came back, uh, Rick brought me back as a uh, a guest director and I got the visitor in my hand and I read it. I remember sitting at the desk reading it. And after I finished, I was panic stricken because I said, this isn't Star Trek. What what am I supposed to do with this? It's just, it's just a bunch of talk and, uh, and I don't know what to do. And I went to Steve Oster who had taken my job as the uh, supervising producer on D Space Nine. I said, Steve, I don't know what to do with this. I, this isn't Star Trek. This is going to end my directing career. I have no clue. Oh, wow. Says wow. David. He said, David, listen to me. Go home and read the script again, please, because you are not getting it. So I went home and I read the script again. And I looked over at my son, who was about 11 or 12 at the time. Oh. And I said, oh, okay, I get it. And it really was an epiphany for me because I had found what other people might have seen immediately in it, but I found the premise. I found uh, that it was a story about familial love, about a father's love for his son, and that's all that mattered. In the whole show, the only thing that I had to keep remembering was that a son is sacrificing his own life for his father. Mm-hmm. And that will drive every scene and every scene does that Um, so so again when you direct you have to find sometimes you have to make up the premise if the script is so bad but this (laughs) was ultimately brilliant and Mm -hmm. uh, thanks to michael taylor who wrote the original script and renee echeviera who who came back in and did a polish and a rewrite on it and michael will even admit this brought in uh the heart a substantial amount of heart into the into the script and ultimately, I look at it as a gift. I was given a gift of this, of this uh, episode, and my main thought was just don't 
mess it up, David. And <laughs> the way that I didn't mess it up was to get out of the way of it. Mm-hmm. What I did was I let the actors act and I tried to film it as simply as possible and didn't get in the way and just let let everything play. My clock runs at about twice the speed of everybody else's. And in that episode, I said, David, you can't do that. You can't rush them. You got to, you got to let it, you got to let it play. You got to just let, let the actors deliver, deliver the show. And my, as I said, my job was to stay out of the way. And my, my biggest contribution to the show was making sure that Tony Todd didn't cry after every take because he was so he was so invested, and I said, mm-hmm. "Tony, you can't cry out, out after every take because you, know, you got to save a little bit." <laughs> but but he, he and I subsequently found out that that he was trashed after every night he go home, and after the show he was trashed. He had to he had to go into a recuperative process because it was so emotionally draining. I didn't, you know, being the insensitive oaf that I am, I didn't realize that I was. I was very nurturing to him, but I had no idea the the service and the and the, I guess the emotional trauma that he was going through for that performance, and it's on the screen. That's oh, it is. That's mm-hmm. magic about Tony. I every time I see him, we embrace. He used to live in. We used to live. I used to live uh, close to me, but he he moved to Marina del Rey or something. And I don't see him as often now. But whenever we do see each other. It's nothing but hugs and and remembering something that was a very uh, special experience for both of us, as well as as well as the rest of the cast. And I guess the proof is in the pudding because so many people say it's not only one of their favorite uh, Star Trek episodes or DS Nine episodes. A lot of people say it's their favorite of all, and I'm oh, I'm yeah. I'm just blown away by that. Mm-hmm. And it isn't Star Trek. It, it's something more than that. It's a story about the human condition and about heart and about love. And it just happens to have a science fiction frame around it. But it could have been any other entity or any other show. If it had that core, I think it would have the same effect because of the the love of a son for his father. Yeah, I I read a companion that uh, Tony Todd's. Um, I think it was an aunt or somebody who had a hand in his upbringing had passed away during that time. And that was part of what was on screen also. So, yeah. yeah. I think I I heard most of that, Fran, but I I think I did. I have heard that. Sorry, Sabrina. Mm -hmm. No, no, I just, yeah, I I understand that that happened to Tony uh, during the course of the show. And uh, Mm -hmm. I have to come in. And then he'd have to sit through uh, so much makeup because he had to go through this aging process. Oh, yeah. so he'd have to be in there for sitting in the chair for two or three hours in the morning as well. So not only was he going through all this emotion, personal emotional crisis, having to deal with the emotional context of the script, but then not getting any sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what he did was as an actor, he just summoned up whatever that essence of his, which is more than just as an actor, whatever that essence is that he was able to, to bring out uh, was extraordinary. And again, it's it's on the screen for us all to appreciate. So we appreciate the show. We appreciate the effect it has on us dramatically. But I appreciate the man for what he s- sacrificed and delivered for the show. I do the ugly cry. 
I do the ugly cry whenever I look at that episode. I, I, I hadn't seen the show in 20 years. Really? Uh, more than 20 years, 20, maybe whatever, crazy, 25, because I had to get ready for, on Trek Talks, we did a whole panel on, on The Visitor, and, and I hadn't seen it. And I got teary-eyed at the end, I have to admit. Mm-hmm. And I'm, a pretty, I'm a pretty hard sell. But it was great <laughs> to be able to, because I didn't even see myself having directed it at that point, because I was so detached from it. I just sat back and watched it as a piece of television, and I was very, very moved by it. Yeah, that I have to say, it is, um, it is by far one of my favorite, I think it's probably my favorite Trek episode of all time uh, for me. And, you know, because I think it's the very best of genre fiction, you know, because I believe that the very best of science fiction is that story about our human condition. You know, I don't, I don't love science fiction because of only because I don't love science fiction only because of the space trappings and, and futuristic thinking. And, you know, I, I, but I love it because um, for me that I, I can, it tells the story about where we are. Um, and I see, and in, in, in a way that I can see myself in the future, I can, I, it's, I don't, you know, I mean, the, the, the heart of it is that, is that heart human story. So I just love that that was the focus of that episode so much that you just let that story breathe and live and mm-hmm. let those actors go for it. Um, you know, which is an incredible statement about you and, and your craft and how you handle wield your craft. You know, this is always, sometimes it's to know when to go in with the blunt force and sometimes to know when it's to go in like a feather, you know, and, um, and that's the master who knows those things. So, you know, much, much love and for to you for that, for letting that episode be what it is. To me, that, that's, that's very generous of you to say. Um, when I left the show, uh, Rick Berman said, you just want to go off and freelance director so you can wreck something. Because <laughs> <laughs> he, he knew that I like to do action and all that stuff. And I do. I love it. I want to get out there and do cool shots and have energy and have the camera zipping around and have explosions. We do all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, just as you said to me, if there isn't heart at the center of it, it ain't worth it. So thank you for those those sentiments. And I'm I'm with you 100 percent. Well, I wanted to ask another question. I mean, I, I I wanted to ask you've done episodes on all four treks. Uh, Next Generation, you did Voyager, Enterprise and Deep Space Nine. So Deep Space Nine is one of those shows that people said at the beginning, oh, you're going to be stuck on the space station and you've got no place to go. It's going to be boring and all this stuff that they said. But getting ready for this show, I watched the beginnings and I watched a lot of the episodes that you had di- directed. And it, the thing I got out of your shows is that you made that station feel so big. Like you had so many tracking shots in there where you, they were walking through that promenade and going up the stairs. They were going into the second deck. And I thought that you made it feel like that station was huge. And is that something that you felt like you had an advantage because you had such big set pieces or set, such big sets as opposed to being on a ship all the time, like in Enterprise, where that was a much smaller, I think it seems like a much smaller stage to me. <laughs> you say, uh, it looked huge. It was huge. And what a gift to a director to have a multi-level set where you could just move all around and get the actors moving. I 
abhor having people just sit around and talk when when they can be on the move. And that set gave you uh, that opportunity. Herman Zimmerman, when I when I when I saw the initial because I would get the plans ahead of time, and when I saw them, I said, "Whoa, this is really cool." I don't know if we can afford it, but yeah. <laughs> and and when you when you finally walk onto the set and see it, it it was big. And and it was a as I as I said it's a, it was a gift to directors because it just opened up the ability to 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 make the show breathe and to move around and do stuff. So the when people say it was locked onto a a, a space station, it was yes. But to me, it has a lot more movement than a lot of the uh, of the space state uh, spaceship uh, shows. So uh, from a visual standpoint, I think it offered boundless opportunities for uh for creativity right right i think i and um you know getting ready for the show i really was watching the scenes and i said david just loves you know moving that camera around and you had these ways of people entering the scene where you know like uh the person the camera would enter the scene like with the person and then it would switch view like like what the person was seeing like you would swing it all the way around and i just i just like I am totally getting into this director thing. I have to watch <laughs> to see more of these well, scenes. I, I, Sabrina, I think you should have been in the dip school. I mean, you're ready to go. You're ready to hit yes. the floor. We agree. I, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah. We definitely agree. If you want to start it again, make sure she's your first. <laughs> so, so tell us about going back to dip school. I mean, Tamia had a question. Go ahead, Tamia. Oh, well, I mean, I just know, well, I didn't really have a question. Um, you know, I I knew that you had thoughts about all these other, um, you know, with the a lot of the Star Trek actors that then subsequently um, got to direct, and I I just knew that you had thoughts about that, Sabrina. About are you giving episodes. it back to me? Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> they, did you um, did you? Pr- produce any of the shows that were directed by other the, the cast members i know lavar directed like 28 episodes i mean i didn't realize he had directed so many episodes but um were you still working on the show when they were directing as well as a producer or yeah i left uh i left after the first year of voyager which was a okay. set season of uh yeah i think that's right um so yes i did get to experience uh, the other directors and it was great to see them. And, and when, it, when an actor directs, you know, they're going to deliver the actors. Mm-hmm. And, and that was always, that was always great to see them and, and how much fun they had stepping out of their roles. Uh, so that, that was great to see. And I mean, I remember Jonathan, um, the most efficient director I think I ever worked with. Uh, he on the on the lab. Uh, there was a, sh- a day when I got a call from the set, and it was five thirty, around five thirty. And they said uh, Jonathan Jonathan just wrapped. Well, the day was supposed to end at eight, Uh-oh. or something like that. And Jonathan comes up to the office, and he's all bouncy and energetic and stuff. And he said, Jonathan, what are you doing? You know, you had you had an hour and a half more to go, or whatever, to two and a half. And he says, I got everything I wanted. And mm-hmm. and you watch the episode, and that's true. He was incredibly efficient, and and delivered it with with elegance and grace and humor. His episodes are were wonderful, and it 
and it parlayed into feature films, uh, the Star Trek feature films, and a career uh, as a as a, a major director and doing Picard now. Um, and it was all there in the beginning where he knew what he wanted. Once he got it, he was ready to move on. The crew loved him. The cast loved him. And he delivered the shows. Special, yeah. special guy. That's why they call them two takes, Franks. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that many. <laughs> he directed my favorite movie was First Contact. So yeah, he did a wonderful. He did, did a terrific, wonderful job. Terrific job on First Contact. Yeah, absolutely. And so you know, directing a movie is got to be a lot different from directing an episode of television no matter how many you're doing so that must have been a big step to go from one to the other i mean i think well, roxanne he, has done it too roxanne dawson has also directed a film in and breaks i'm not sure if lavar has yeah i don't know it, yeah it's a big step uh but they all put in the work so kudos to them i i take my hat off to them especially because like um for example, Michael Dorn, who would have to direct, and he's in the scene, and he's in the, and he's in makeup while he's directing. <laughs> that's so, so funny. That is so funny. It's like what? Oh what God. aren't I doing today? I don't know. <laughs> I'm doing everything here. <laughs> but um, I wanted to ask you about our friend who you recommended that we talk to, Adele, on Adele. <laughs> so you worked with Adele about what several years? She was your assistant director when you came on as a director for things, and. You had her as a producer. I love Adele. She is one of the kindest, most compassionate people I've ever known. Equanimity to the max. Uh, uh, a, a mother force for, for the show. Um, uh, in, a, in a strong leadership sense, but nurturing. Um, so I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Adele and and we went, we spent a lot of years together and uh, um, she was a key part of keeping this incredible machine running smoothly and with grace. So uh, that was she, one of the big surprise shows we had. I mean, we knew you recommended her and we, you know, you introduced us and we said, could you please do the show? And then she came out with stories that absolutely were incredible. She knew where all the bodies were buried. <laughs> she does. I hope she didn't dig up any of mine. But uh... <laughs> you're good, David. You're, you're safe. <laughs> I, you know, I wanted to talking about. Uh, we were talking about Adele Simmons. We didn't say her last name, but um, Adele, of course, is on the show um, known as Aunt Adele. Uh, you also have um, a character on the show, the lionfish in Picard's uh, ready room, uh, Livingston, which <laughs> I didn't, I could never remember if Livingston was named on the show or I, I think I found out his, the name was Livingston from the books, from the Star Trek novels. Was it ever yeah. mentioned on the show that Livingston, that was uh, the lionfish's name? No. <laughs> the way that it probably became most publicly known is uh, Tops, who makes the trading cards for baseball and football, uh -huh. whatever. They did trading cards for the show. Right. Yes, and, I have them. I collect them. <laughs> well, I, I have. I think I have three trading cards. Two of, <laughs> two of them are, are me, and one is of Livingston, the fish. <laughs> and, in, and they have a picture of, of him 
I guess he's a him. I don't know. Inside inside the tank. uh, And it has Livingston on the trading card. When I I go to conventions, if I have to sign autographs, they'll bring out the trading cards from the side. And they're never of me. They're always of the fish. Of the fish. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how much they get on. I wonder how much they get on eBay for that. Right. You know. <laughs> I'm pretty petty. I, 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 yeah, right. I don't have that card. I'm going to find yeah. it. <laughs> but but I was. Uh, it's it's rather not. It's not really a pleasant thing in my in my estimation though because Herman Zimmerman, the production designer, on many on many series for Star Trek and, and on feature films as well, uh, was the production designer on The Next Generation. And I was a production manager at t- that time during the budgeting and the first season. And my main job was to say no to everybody so that we could stay on budget. And when you do that, you don't make a lot of friends. Mm. So Herman, in honor of my constantly saying no to him and restricting him on his <laughs> creative pursuits, uh, named the fish which eats little uh, live uh, goldfish uh, Livingston because I was a carnivore just you know uh, uh, eating these little these little other fish oh it was it was not a kind it, it was, was not a kind thing <laughs> backhand compliment it was, yeah, it was, un- <laughs> it was unkind ah, well you have and a starship Jerry- Get a starship huh? named after you too, though. And Come Jericho. On. Jericho got rid of Livingston. <laughs> Jell- Jellico? Jellico. Jericho. Excuse me. Jericho. And, I, and I like I like the guy. I like I really thought he did some real good things, you know. But he got rid of Livingston too. Get the he fish out of there, he too. Sure did get he rid of sure Livingston. Did. Yes, he did. <laughs> That's like right, that's to put thing. on some clothes. So, you know, hey, I, I like the guy myself. Uh, you know, I thought he was okay. I don't know now. I don't know. Yeah, he had with a living stuff. Well, uh, the last thing I did want to bring up, and I wanted everybody to know this, is that you are the person that suggested Avery Brooks for that part. And how did that come about? That's big. That's a big deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Pillar... Uh, said that in casting for Deep Space Nine that he wanted to uh, consider African-American actors for the role of Cisco for the commander. And I had uh, a a, a couple years prior to that, I had done a movie of the week as a production manager uh, of Uncle, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which Avery played Uncle Tom. And my memory is seared with his performance in that movie, how incredibly powerful uh, Avery as an actor is, not only as a, 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 just as a person, but, but as an actor, the charisma, the power, the passion, the strength, all of that stuff just blew me away when he played Uncle Tom. So um, I went to Junie Lowry and I said, uh, when we were, casting, excuse me, casting, I said, uh, uh, what about Avery, Avery Brooks? And she says, oh, uh, Avery's in the Bahamas on vacation. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, so? Mm -hmm. Well, he's on vacation. We we can't get him up here. No script. I said, Junie, 
you're talking about a potential seven year job for a, for an actor. Are you saying he wouldn't want to read the script on vacation? <laughs> she said, yeah, you're right. I'll send him the script. <laughs> so, so she, so she sent him the script. Uh, he came in, went to network or we didn't have network. We went to the studio and, and he got the job oh, and wow. to the incredible benefit of, I can't, I, I cannot think of any other actor who could have played Cisco knowing what deep space nine was at its core. Mm-hmm. I think he was the perfect actor and the perfect reflection for what Deep Space Nine was and is. So I am thrilled that he got the job. I am proud that I suggested him. Uh, and I, I think he is and was and is the soul of, of, that, of that show and that it would not have been, it wouldn't have had the gravitas and the, no. and the, the, the depth mm-hmm. that it has without that, that psyche of, of, of Avery as a person that he infused Cisco with. Um, I, I remember totally. seeing, I, th- this is an actor that is so amazing. I remember seeing during the run of the show, he did, uh, um, he did his Robeson show uh, at a theater Ooh. here in LA. Oh, yeah. And I, I was just, I mean, to talk about just blown away, not his, his, not only that what he did with as an actor but his but singing and 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 the voice of Robeson coming out of out of Avery of him yeah. the tra- and the tragedy of of this man in that in that unbelievable voice that he has it was it was it was magical so i'm i'm a huge avery brooks fan Oh, yeah. For for the listeners who aren't don't know uh, the reference to Robeson, he's talking about Paul Robeson, who is an amazing uh, black actor turned um, activist as well. Um, yes. And so, open up your history books, Google Paul Google. Robeson, and your life will be changed by knowing who he is, who he was, yes. and what he sacrificed. Yeah. at the kind of light light thing at the end of uh, Bada Bada Bing. Is it the boom, bada bing? Bada bing, bada bang. Thank you. When he and Vic sing, you know, mm-hmm. and he's, you know, he's, you know, he's doing this, you know, I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is like, it's the complete, the complete thing. He can play the piano, he can sing, he can act, and he's fine. So, you know, <laughs> he had it all. He, you know, he was just, you know, that's when, when, you know, when, when his head got shaved and, he got the goatee and everything. I'm like, oh my god, look at this man! I love him. I love him. Yeah, it took oh. took a while to get there, but we, he, you know, he, his look finally reflected who who Cisco really was. And yeah. it, it, took a little, it took a little while to convince the producers and whatever studio, whatever. But uh, finally, that look is exactly what Cisco should should be. It was it was great to see that. I have a question. I mean, yeah. after. After the decision was made, when he shaved and we saw Cisco in his true glory and in his true power, the people who, and you might not be able to answer this question, but I always wonder, the people who were resistant to seeing this on screen, reflected on screen, were they looking at him going, wow, we should have done this a long time ago, or yeah, like this is it, like, 
you know, did they know that they had finally hit on the essence of Cisco, like being reflected? If they didn't, they were idiots. Yeah, I think they were idiots for waiting that long to begin with. But you know, I wasn't there, so. Well, and I I wasn't there either. Uh, So I I don't I don't know, but but it's just so clear that if you take an image from the first season and then whenever the change happens, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well, which which one represents the power of this character? It's a no brainer. Yes. Yes. Well, I think we have asked all of our questions we're coming up to the end do you think and Tamia what do you think anything else we have girls anything ladies <laughs> I just I I, I don't want to take up any more of your time although I would because <laughs> it's been really fascinating to talk to you and to listen to you and mm-hmm. I swear I think that there needs to be a show where it's David Livingston and Sabrina Wood talking movies and I would listen oh my to God. I would listen to that long. <laughs> you know what all day long you know what you know we what talk, I got to, you send your people and my people we're going to talk about a show we need to do a movie show you know yeah, what you know I what just, I want to do I want to do all the Star Trek episodes that are based on movies that have a movie in it we get the Magnificent Seven we got the Mitchell candidate we got the Godfather we can we could find some more no doubt there's a lot yeah so I mean I just want to say thank you very much uh, on behalf of the Sci-Fi Sisters and our listeners we appreciate your time mm-hmm. and you know, and just sharing yourself with us and your heart. It's its wonderful. I've had a really nice time talking to you and listening to you. Thank you. Thank you. That's very generous of you. And and I'm going to see everybody uh, on the 14th. Yes. <laughs> yes. We'll be back. <laughs> so, Sister Yvette, you want to let people know where they can... Uh, put down their favorite episodes, get in touch with us and let us know their favorite episodes directed um, by Trek actors and their favorite Mr. Livingston episodes. You sure can. You can find us at SciFiSisters.com. That's S-Y-F-Y-S-I-S-T-A-S.com. You can join us on The Mothership. That's M-U-T-H-A-S-H-I-P and the Sci-Fi Sisters Book Club, both on Facebook. Download the Trek Geeks Network app where you can find us and our family of podcasts on the Trek Geeks Network on Instagram and TikTok, sci-fi.sisters. And we are also on the Twitter at Sci-Fi Sisters. Become a patron of Sci-Fi Sisters today at patreon.com forward slash Sci-Fi Sisters. After listening to this podcast, please rate us and write a review. We may just read it on an upcoming episode. And of course, we would be remiss if we did not shout out the baddest engineer in all the universes. That's Dose the Anonymous One, who is responsible for the music you hear on our show. And he's a really, like I said, badass engineer. So if you need production skills or music skills, hit him up. Dose underscore the anonymous underscore one on Instagram. Thank you all for listening. Mr. Livingston, I presume you are amazing and you're wonderful. And we thank you. And we love you all. Peace, love, and hair grease. Bye.